Today we continue a series uh, in the book of Romans called Be Transformed. Uh, based on the, the 12th chapter of Romans, as we talked about last week in a passage in there that's talking about the, the big theme or the main outcome that Paul had for writing to the Roman church uh, is to be transformed, for us to be changed uh, through the renewing of our mind and not being conformed to this world, but being transformed uh, by God's word and, and his will. And today we're going to continue as we're working through the first chapter of Romans. And we've gotten past Paul's introduction as he introduced himself to the Roman church and, and gave a little overview. Today we're going to get to the theme of why he's writing. The heart of this whole letter uh, is really, is, I'm going to give you the punchline, it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to let them know that. And the whole rest of the book is really him elaborating on it if you picture the gospel as being a huge diamond what Paul's essentially going to say is that I'm, I'm coming to share with you the good news the riches of this truth this blessing that God has brought to us and then he's going to take the rest of the book to walk around it and help us see the different facets of it and I hope that we see as a church that the gospel is not just something oh yeah believe in Jesus Christ and then move on to the rest of our faith and then all these rules we got to follow no you never leave the gospel a better picture is a gospel is like a pool and the pool is the gospel and when you first enter in that's when you start your relationship with God but the rest of your life you're simply diving deeper into it and exploring more of its fullness and this is like all those facets of what God did for us through that good news so if you have a Bible today, open it up to the book of Romans. Chapter 1 is where we'll be. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17. If you're new with us or, or new to the Bible, there are some hardcover Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab one of those. And their page number is listed in your uh, small group uh, sermon notes guide where you can follow along with the message today and take some notes. The passage number or the page number is listed there and you can open it right up to that passage. I'd encourage you to open up a Bible and follow along. We'll also put the words up on the screen so you can follow along up there as well. But here's what I want to cover today, real simply, kind of give you a framework. I want to help you understand three reasons that Paul's going to share with us today why you can be confident in the gospel, in this good news. Three reasons why you can be confident about believing it, trusting it, sharing it, understanding it, all those things. Why can we be confident? And Paul's going to start out here after he's done his introduction to share with them these three reasons why he's doing what he's doing in writing this letter and even wanting to come to the church in Rome. So let's pray and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, thank you so much for just the blessing of being able to gather as your people uh, to celebrate you and to celebrate what you've done uh, in many different ways through song, uh, through the Lord's table, through the teaching of your word, just through our fellowship and, and encouraging of one another. But Lord, ultimately the reason we exist and the reason we do any of these things is because of the good news of Jesus Christ. So my prayer uh, this morning would be that you would help us uh, further understand uh, just the beauty and majesty of that truth. Lord, that, that Paul's reason for writing, that our minds would be transformed, that our lives would be changed, would come about here in our lives as we understand it and as we trust in it. 
the Lord guide our time and open our hearts and our minds to just how beautiful you really are and how much we need you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 15. 15 is just kind of introducing to the reasons we're going to see in 16 and 17. So Paul says this after he gives his introduction in the letter. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Hey, let me just help you understand this word a little bit. The word gospel means good news. It was the Greek word that meant good news. And it was used for all kinds of things. Anytime uh, someone would, would bring good news to someone, it could be related to any kind of thing, that we won a battle. And, and messengers would come back and say, oh, they're sharing the gospel. It's good news. That's what the word meant in a general sense. The, the authors of the Bible and the New Testament writers began to use it then as a specific word to refer to the good news about Jesus Christ, the good news from God to us as people. And that's how Paul's writing about it here. So it's good news uh, that he wrote to you also in Rome. He wants to share this good news of what God's revealed to them. And then he says in verse 16, he's going to get into his reasons. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So here's our first point. Here's our first reason for why we can have confidence in the gospel and not be ashamed of it. Beside it being good news, I find absolute confidence in the gospel because it is God's power to save. Paul says, I find absolute confidence in the gospel because it's God's power to save. It's how God has chosen to save humanity. This is really important, and we're going to see this more and more as we go through it. But before we dive into some of the specifics of it and, and, and understand it in our hearts, let's look at some of the details of what Paul's talking about here. And I want to give you two key things that are really important for us to understand about the gospel, because today we're going to look at it from a broader, bigger picture, and the rest of the series we'll be diving in and looking at a lot of these facets that fill it out. So here's two things I want you to see first about the gospel. First, we're going to talk about the facts of the gospel, okay? The facts of the gospel. What are the specific events, if you bring it down, uh, that make up the gospel? And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, as you can see up on the screen. We're going to take a look at that. So let me share with you the facts of the gospel. What are the events kind of surrounding, if you had to summarize it down, how would you summarize the gospel? And Paul does this probably best in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Now, Paul, as he usually does, he has these run-on sentences, but stick with the top part. He said, now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And he goes on to this little diversion. And then you come down here to where he says, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. There's the colon. Now he's going to get back to his original thought. Here's the gospel that I preached to you. And here's the facts of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, that's the nutshell details of the gospel. Now, there's a lot that can be fleshed out from that, but that's the general facts, that Jesus died for our sins, 
Okay, and his life, obviously we had to know about his life as we learned. He was buried and he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now obviously those accordance with the scriptures is a whole lot of other information. But that's the central idea of the gospel. You'll hear it when we baptize people. We ask them those simple questions. Do you believe that Jesus lived in a perfect life, that he died for your sins, was buried, and he rose again? We're asking them, do you, are you trusting in the gospel? And then we ask them, do you, if you put your faith and trust in him as your savior. That's the nutshell version of the gospel. The effects of the gospel are a second thing I want you to see. So that's the facts of it. Next is the effects. Here's why this is important. Most people in the world know the facts of the gospel. In fact, most people that come to church know the facts of the gospel. But the facts of the gospel don't save you. The effects of the gospel are what save you. In fact, all of history revolves around the facts of the gospel. Our calendar is based on the facts of the gospel. To deny the facts of the gospel is actually to deny historical facts. You know that historians that have studied it say there is more historical validity for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is support that George Washington was our first president. If you studied it on a historical basis, you can't prove history scientifically. That's just a general principle. You can't go back and scientifically prove that George Washington was our first president. So you do it by legitimate witnesses. Do the witnesses all affirm that? Well, there is more solid evidence to prove Jesus' life, death, and resurrection than there is George Washington's existence as our first president. Yet, many of us reject one over the other. Say, these facts are uncontributable. You can't, you can't refute them. But the effect of it is different. Most people don't know the effect of it. What, why did God do it? They just know that God did this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one verse that gives us a very simple explanation of it. Paul says this. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, hang on for just a minute. I'm going to rewrite this for you up here to elaborate. Paul's saying this in a somewhat poetic way to summarize it. So I'm going to give you references so you understand what he's talking about. Okay, so I put in brackets who Paul's talking about. He said, for our sake, he meaning God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin or to become sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, meaning in Jesus, we, believers, might become the righteousness of God. This is the effects of the gospel. The greatest exchange that this world has ever known took place in the gospel. Jesus, whom the Bible says, who was perfect, lived the only perfect sinless life, became sin. What Paul's saying, or God, Paul's writing here, is that Jesus didn't become a sinner. It means he became the consequences of sin. He hung on that cross like the worst of criminals, meaning he took on sin. He became sin. The embodiment of sin all went upon him. Why? So that we, who were sinners, could take his righteousness. Two things happened in the receiving and the believing of the gospel. Your sin is then put on Jesus Christ and he takes the punishment for it and his righteousness, which is just the word for right living before God, his perfect living becomes credited to your account. That's the effect of the gospel. That's why God sent his son to us. 
You see, this confidence that we're talking about in the gospel is a confidence that's very different than how we relate to confidence in today's world. This is not a self-confidence. It's not all the self-esteem and self-worth talk that we're bombarded with here in our modern day. And we're going to see that more and more as we get into the rest of this book. Paul's going to, if you, if you have struggles with self-esteem and you think you've got to measure up, I'm just going to warn you now, don't come the next few weeks. Because you're going to have to look face to face to how broken and sinful you are, myself included. We are a mess. And the gospel, good news is not, hey, you're a mess, but follow these ten rules and you'll clean yourself up and then you'll be okay. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, yes, you're a mess, that's why you need a substitute. And I provided that substitute. This is not a self-confidence. The nature of the gospel, in fact, transforms us away from self-confidence. It transforms us away from self-righteousness. It transforms us away from a mindset of entitlement that I deserve this or I deserve that or I deserve to be treated this way. The gospel shatters all those things. It's our nature to be self-performance based. That's all these things. And to think we earn or deserve something. The gospel breaks in to all those things and turns that upside down. We See, when we act as Christians like something is owed to us, like we deserve something or some kind of special treatment, we actually act contrary to the gospel that reminds us we got what we did not deserve in the grace of Jesus Christ. And he got from us what he did not deserve. The gospel is the most unfair thing to ever happen. You know, this was captured really well in a conversation I had this week with my nine-year-old daughter. We were in the kitchen, and, and uh, lying on the counter was a, a book that I'm taking our staff through this year, and it's titled Big Orange Book, so it kind of caught her eye, and it says, Fairness is Overrated. And Maya, if you know Maya, she's just like a talker and kind of thinker. And so she sees that and she goes, Dad, why are you reading that book? I said, oh, I'm taking our whole staff through it. She says, you're taking your staff through a book that says fairness is overrated? And I'm going, yeah. And she goes, well, that doesn't seem right. Don't you want to be fair? You want them to be fair? And I said, absolutely, I, I don't. I said, do you know that God is, is not fair? She's kind of pondering. She's kind of thinking all of a sudden, she goes, you, you know, she says, I was kind of wondering about that. She says, it's not really fair that Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden. Why do I get in trouble for that, God? <laughs> I'm going, you're right on it, girl. I said, he, it's totally unfair, isn't it, that you get punished because Adam and Eve blew it. But I said, understand the option that would have been open to you if God had done it a different way. Adam and Eve blew it being born innocent. And if you wanted it fair... Then when you were born, he could have said, okay, Maya, you'll be born innocent, but now you have to live 24-7 every single moment and second of your day, as many years as you live, never once disobeying me. Never once even having a thought that does not put the good and glorious God of heaven first and foremost in your life. That would be fair. You, you want that option? She kind of shook her head. She knew that wasn't. Fairness isn't as great as it we think it is. What, what God was doing there was making a way so that, yes, we fall into sin because of that, but that was the same means by which he would bring us out of it, so that it would no longer be based on our performance. Because even if you were born perfectly innocent, which none of us are anymore since Adam and Eve, you would have blown it just like they would. They represented what we would become. And now Jesus 
gives us greater representation, a different representation. See, the nature of our, our lives and our, our fallen nature is performance-based. I mean, we're in the midst of the Super Bowl. I don't know if you guys knew this, the Super Bowl is today. I'm just letting you know that. That's, that's a gimme. You don't, have to, you don't have to pay a thing for that as a freebie. But I don't know if you know some facts about the people playing in the Super Bowl. Uh, a couple of facts that I think really relate to what we're talking about today. Well, I, I'm going to make them relate because I just want to talk about the Super Bowl. <laughs> is Peyton Manning and Cam Newton ha- have the largest age gap of any two quarterbacks that ever played in the Super Bowl. What's interesting is they have a lot of parallels. And if you look at football and if you look at life, you see how much performance determines a player's value. Peyton Manning came out of college in 1998. He was the number one overall draft pick in the NFL. Okay, that means he was the most valuable player to any NFL team when he came out. Everyone thought his performance was going to bring the greatest value to their team. And they were probably right. He's arguably one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. No one's thrown for more pass yards than Peyton Manning has. No one has more touchdowns passes than Peyton Manning. No one has orchestrated more winning touchdown drives than Peyton Manning. No one has more football wins than Peyton Manning. That's not a bad record. Cam Newton comes in 2011, number one draft pick. No other player did anyone think would bring more value to a team. In terms of their performance, these guys are phenomenal. Tons of reasons to have self-confidence. However, Peyton Manning at the ripe old age of 39 is hoping he can survive this game. I mean, he had the worst season he's ever had in his life this year. And he's feeling every hit he's ever taken, and he's got very little time left to perform at the level he's performing at. If you don't believe that, I read about Joe Montana. He was one of my era quarterbacks. Joe Montana won the Super Bowl four times. His last one in 1988, well, actually 1989 when he won it, he was named the NFL Player of the Year, and then he won the NFL Most Valuable Player in the Super Bowl. Huge performance, great self-confidence. But when you read about him today, he can't even play basketball with his own kids. He's had so many knee surgeries and replacements, neck fusions. He has so much arthritis throughout his body. He talks about going skiing with his family, and he said, I was able to go down one slope. I had so much pain. He said, I can't do any of the things that I would love to do that all my family loves to participate in. He said, I have so much hurt and pain over the abuse my body took during those years. Here is a guy that in one season of his life was thought to be the greatest quarterback ever. Just a few decades later, no one's even talking about him. Peyton Manning is right on the cusp of that. My point is this. Do you really want your performance to be the measure for whether you measure up in life? Because even as humans, we have to constantly transfer our confidence from one person to another to another because no one's performance ever lasts as long as we need. In fact, even these guys that talk about their greatness and say they're going to win games and they go out and do it, not one of them has a perfect record. They still blow it. There's still times when they're totally ashamed of their performance and they have to, you know, eat what they said before a game. But Paul says here, I am not ashamed of the gospel, not now, 
not ever. Why? Because it's based on the only perfect performance this world has ever known. And that performance was Jesus Christ in his perfect, sinless life. Second thing we see in here is Paul says that's the first reason, uh, the good news, uh, the confidence of the gospel is the power of the same. But the second thing in verse 17, he says this, for in it, and if you have your Bible with you, circle the word it, circle the word it, and then draw an arrow back, pointing back to the gospel, where Paul says gospel in verse 15, because that's what he's talking about. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith to faith. So here's your second point. Is I understand the righteousness of God through the gospel. I understand the righteousness of, the go- of God through the gospel. That's why I can be confident. Here's how I know what is right, what is good. And we see this in a couple ways, but we see it most clearly in Jesus as being the only righteous life. He's the only person that ever fulfilled the law perfectly. Alex said it so beautifully today as he pointed and walked us through the Old Testament and why we celebrate communion. But Jesus revealed that righteousness. He showed it. God had given to us in principles in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments and in other laws for them. He revealed his righteousness there, but not nearly as powerfully as when we saw a walking, breathing, living illustration in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a living example. But that's not all that Paul's going to talk about in this book. And that's not all that he means by it. We do see God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. But that righteousness is different than any other righteousness that was ever revealed prior to it. Because that righteousness is a righteousness that's now made available to you and to me. You see, most people, and even most religions, say Jesus was a good teacher. He was a very religious man. He's a great example, they'll say. But you know what? Jesus is simply an example, does absolutely nothing for you. In fact, we would be better off not having Jesus if all he was was an example. Because all a perfect example of a life would do for us would condemn us even more because we don't measure up. Because you and I could not live the way Jesus lived. That's not all he was. Jesus not only revealed God's righteousness, but he made it available for us. You see, God was in Jesus Christ offering a substitute for you and for me. That's the beauty of this gospel. And that's what Paul wants to tell us to the rest of this letter. Here's what God was doing. I want to show you in just a couple passages in the gospel. Man, we're running short on time and there's so much good stuff to share, but let me just, let me just, I'm just going to keep you around, all right? You guys good? Are we all right? All right, I promise I'll, I'll go as fast as I can. But, I want you, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to start reading your Bible differently because you understand the good news. You start to see what the gospel is and how every page reveals it. I'm just going to take you to a couple scenes in the death of Jesus Christ to help you see how even hidden in those pages is this idea of a substitute where God was substituting one for another, an unfair substitution so that he could give us what we don't deserve and he would take on what he didn't deserve. So I understand the righteousness. So the first one's in Mark chapter 14. So we're looking at the gospel of Mark. I think we are. There we go. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. 
but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now let me explain that a little bit to you uh, so you understand what's going on there. Uh, the high priest would have known exactly what Jesus was saying at that moment because he's quoting principles in a passage right out of Daniel chapter 9, and if, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 7. If you read Daniel chapter 7, it's a scene of judgment. It's God the Father on the throne, and one like the Son of Man is coming in power to bring judgment to the world. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I am that one that that prophecy speaks about. Okay, here's the irony in it. The chief priests, they're a council that's judging Jesus' life. And Jesus is revealing himself as the ultimate judge who will come at the end of the age. You see the substitution? The ones who are going to be judged are judging God himself. And Jesus is allowing them to do it. He's becoming a substitute. They should be judged. Jesus is being judged. He goes on to say, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The judge is being willing to be judged. So they pass him off. And the, and the a scene goes on to Mark 15. Next slide. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate's the political leader of that place. The Jews couldn't kill anyone under their laws. They had to pass him off to the Roman leader, which is Pilate, and he had to execute it, and so they had this agreement, and Pilate asked them, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, uh, the feast of, of Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So Pilate, it was a tradition that they would release one prisoner every time during the Passover feast. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, meaning release one of the prisoners. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So here's Barabbas, a murderer, a known murderer, to all of them, and they're asking for him to be released. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Do you see the substitution? A murderer is set free, and an innocent man is crucified. 
That's the gospel. As we read that, we should read into those where we would be. We're the ones that should have been judged, and yet Jesus was judged instead. We're the ones that should have been crucified. We're the ones where Jesus said, hey, murder is not just the committing of the act. If you even are angry in a man and think about murdering him, you've committed the crime. Every one of us. And Jesus was substituted for you and for me. That's the gospel. Last point that Paul says, the confidence that we can have in the gospel shows up in the last part of the verse. It says, in the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's a Greek idiom. It's hard to translate into English, but it, it essentially means completely by faith. It is totally by faith that this righteousness is revealed. And it is written, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. A quote from Habakkuk showing that even in the Old Testament, it was still faith. And if you read the book of Habakkuk, you understand why it was faith and not by actions or circumstances at that moment. I receive this righteousness from God when I trust the gospel for my salvation. That's our final confidence, that I receive it when I trust the gospel for my salvation. You see, God made available to us Jesus Christ's righteousness through him, through faith, through trusting in him. The words Paul uses in here, believe, faith, they're words that come from the exact same word the same root, and they have the same general meaning. And I want to explain this because this is how we use it a lot in our church, is I often say trust in Christ. Even though the Bible often says believe or it says faith, those are words that we've lost their meaning in the English in our modern language. We believe, we, we just think that's some intellectual thing. Oh yeah, I believe that. I believe that's a chair. I believe this is a church. I believe that. But trust implies a confidence in, a relying on. And these words mean that, that you're confident in this truth. You're relying on it. You're trusting in it for your righteousness. That's the heart of the gospel. If you think your good works are going to save you, then you're not trusting in the gospel. You might know the facts of it, you might understand some of these truths, but you're not trusting in Jesus Christ's righteousness for your eternal life. And instead, you're relying on your own performance. The flip side of that can be true as well. You can feel like, oh, I've done such horrible things in my life, God could never save me. And you know what? You're still basing your salvation on your performance then. You're saying that your performance is more powerful than his performance. The gospel penetrates all of our excuses and it removes all of our boasting and our pride because it's based on a righteousness that is offered to us through Jesus Christ that is declared unto you in spite of your wretchedness and in time begins to work itself out in you as you respond you see, Jesus Christ is the embodiment and accomplishment of the gospel. From Adam and Eve until his birth, humanity had a perfect record. All we did was sin. A perfect record. No one had ever broken that until he came on the scene. And he lived a life for you and for me and then willingly laid it down 
to receive a punishment that you and I deserved. And when Jesus experienced the infinite wrath of God the Father because of our sin, when he hung on that cross, he was demonstrating his compassion for you. When Jesus temporarily lost the infinite love of his Father, it was because of an infinite love that he had for you. And he became a substitute for you and me to demonstrate a love that this world has never, ever seen before. A love that led him to experience such pain and suffering so that he might reveal how serious sin is to his father. A wrath that he was willing to experience so that you and I would not have to. See, when you see that love, when you grasp that love, when you begin to understand how God reveals that love through Jesus Christ, it begins to pound in your heart. A love that pounds through the most hardened and broken and sinful of hearts this world has ever known. A love that penetrates the most bitter and broken and angry heart this world could ever experience. a love that may be pounding in your heart right now that God has for you and for me through his son see if you've never understood this truth if you've never understood what the gospel really is then my prayer would be you would hear that today that you would trust in it today trust in him today begin a journey that will transform your life forever. Maybe you're here and and you've taken that step. Maybe it's been years since you remember taking that step for the first time. And and oftentimes we confuse it and start thinking, okay, I, I did the gospel thing back then. Now it's about me getting here on time. It's about me serving. It's about me doing all these things for God. And, and you've slipped back into the problem of a performance-based life. See, it's not gospel here and in my performance since then. It's gospel, gospel, deeper and deeper into the gospel. That's what changes you. The deeper you understand what God did for you and his love for you, that's what changes you. You see, that's why Christians can still have broken marriages that are an absolute mess because we, we trust God and we say, you did this for me, Jesus, but, but my wife or my husband, you better perform up to my standards. We live by faith in him, but the rest of our life is performance. And we take that mindset into every area of our life. The gospel needs to change you everywhere. It should change how you love your spouse. It should change how you love your children. It should change how children love their parents. It should change how you interact in your workplace. When that truth is finished sinking into your heart, will be someone that you don't even recognize today. And I mean that in a good way. Imagine a church that allowed that gospel to penetrate its heart. Imagine a church that that gospel was transforming their mind in a community that desperately needs to see the power of God and to 
salvation. That could be this church. That could be our church. That could be your home. That could be your workplace. That could be your school. And my prayer is that as we go on this journey, that we'll experience the transformation that Paul intended when he wrote this letter, that God intended when he saved Paul and gave him these words.